The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome to The Legendarium. Well, uh, Sarah, you came armed with a notebook. Well, TBH, my <laughs> notebook is a list of names and who they are. So <laughs> yes. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 300 and something or other. Today, we are finally, finally getting back to the obelisk gate this is book two in the broken earth trilogy by nk jemison it has been months since we read book one if you're listening to this three years or five years or you know 85 years in the future then you don't notice the the jump but it's there and i i mention it partly to apologize for those who have waited so long and partly as an explanation for why we will have forgotten everything about book one in this discussion. <laughs> so anyway, I am Craig Hanks, your host. And over there, well, he's dumber than a bag of rocks and a lot less useful to a jawless stone eater. It's Ryan Bruckman. Uh, going to let it slide. Going to let it slide. Had a good one, but it's really bad. So going to let it go. Yeah, you're going to let it slide because uh, you don't remember what that refers to, right? N- no, I totally different reason. <laughs> Moving on. All right. Well, and I feel confident, honestly, that if I got kidnapped, she would either go to the ends of the earth to find me and rescue me or find a nice, a nice cushy spot to set up somewhere on the way to the ends of the earth uh, <laughs> and just kind of not worry about me anymore. It's my lovely and talented wife, Sarah Hanks. Thank you for having me. And I would absolutely do one of those two things. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. All right. So, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Obelisk Gate. Uh, before we get there, just a little bit of housekeeping. Remember, go to thelegendarium.com, and that's where you're going to find links to all sorts of stuff. Uh, Patreon, you can go straight to patreon.com slash legendarium, uh, or you can find the link on our website. You can also go to our Discord server and join in the conversation there. We love having all the discussion. We are getting close, Ryan, to a 1,000 members on Discord. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, and, and it's crazy how many of these people are active. I know there's a lot of lurkers, and you are welcome also. I hope you enjoy uh, watching the conversations. But um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful Discord. When we so. cross that threshold, do we get do we start getting? It's like AARP. Do we get start getting cult status things where you know they, we get email magazines, things like that from cults. Cults? Yeah. N- why? Why? I've never. Never mind. I just don't look at my search history. We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> If you're talking about cults, we do need more information. Cults so hot right now. Oh, it's it's in, it's in, it's, it's the in thing right now. Uh, are you watching all these cult documentaries? You know what? Let's let's leave that alone. Yeah, lots of cult documentaries. Some of them are good. Go, go watch them. Uh, anyway, uh, I can't think of anything else. Thelegendarium.com. Just go there and and you know, check it out. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the Obelisk Gate. Again, this is book two in the Broken Earth trilogy. This book won the Hugo for Best Novel in 2017. Um, The second of her three in a row, right? All three of these books won a Hugo, part of why we're talking about them. Uh, And I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll get to the question of whether it deserved a Hugo. Uh, But if we do, personally, I refuse to answer that question uh, because I have no idea. (laughs) 
And why'd you bring it up? So that you could answer it um, as the as the resident non-fantasy person. I figured you could tell us. Uh, uh, that makes no sense. Of okay. course, I have I have no idea. Of, <laughs> I don't know what Hu- is. Is there a Hugo that the Hugo Award was named for? Are Hugo there Weaving. Other- and his performance actually, in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually wow. French. It's H-U-G-E-A-U. The, the Hug- it's, it's, a, it's from the Huguenots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. Like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, see, clearly, <laughs> I didn't know that. I don't know how I could be any sort of expert on whether this book earned the Hugo Award. No, I, yeah. And I, I have no idea who the nominees were. And frankly, I don't know. The Hugos, it's, it's not that they... <clears throat> I, the, my saying that I don't care doesn't mean that I don't think they should exist and that they're not important, anything like that. It's just, I don't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like the Oscars. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, Ryan, am I, am I being unfair to the Hugos here? I know because I feel very similarly about like, <laughs> okay, good. All right. I, I appreciate the sticker on the front of the, the book. It tells me <laughs> that people have appreciated so this book. Somebody liked it. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. Well, do you guys want a, uh, a recap? of book two here yes please okay because it's been a while since you read it i know both of you read it kind of like i was the hold up here so i was the one who was uh you know had the brakes on unintentionally just you know life happened um but anyway uh i distilled this book down for you normally i give you a three paragraph uh you know what summary uh, of the book today i did it in one efficient Uh, yeah very efficient are you ready uh, the obelisk gate opens with Essen in Kastrima and ends with Essen in Kastrima. We also get a new point of view in Nasun, who travels with her murderous father and eventually ends up in the care of Shafa, the guardian who took in a young Essen at the book at the beginning of book one. Turns out Nasun is pretty magical as well. This is a book in which not much really happens, but a lot of questions are answered and even more are set up for book three. So wait for book three right right that's that's my summary wow yeah i think there are some things that happen in the book (laughs) yeah there is a few things about a another calm coming to attack and forcing them to like you will let you live but you have to get rid of all of your origins there's the whole story of uh uh shafa and his memory loss and so there's a few other things that happen in this book other than just kastrima but understandably Yes, we spend most of our time living in a geode in this story. Yeah, and you know, I, I so I did a little bit of uh, reading around, you know, as far as what other people thought of the book when it came out, you know, so reading reviews on various websites, um, and for the most part, the reviews were positive, mm-hmm. um, and I would say for good reason, uh, but there was one review in particular where the guy was just like, nothing happens. I can't remember. <laughs> it was like in Wired or something. I, I can't remember which site it was on, but he's nothing happens. This is total middle book syndrome. Uh, and I, I, I get that also. I mean, I'm being flippant in my summary, but, uh, but you know, not a lot happens in this book as far as events, but that doesn't mean it's not interesting and, and exciting, right? Yeah, it's a lot of this book, I feel... She decided in this one, it does suffer from middle book syndrome a little bit, uh, but she decided to tackle deep topics in this one with a little more time than maybe she did in the first one where it was still trying to establish the world and trying to get things going. So do you have an example? Uh, specific, it, she consistently deals with the, uh, the way that second class citizens are treated in this world or third class or whatever, the origins specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but a huge part of the time at Kostrima is the constant battle between 
those who, uh, the stills and the origins, and they have managed to work out a society where they can live together and it's worked out, like it's working out. And we kind of had a previous version of that on the island in the first book. If you remember that, the mm-hmm. the pirate oh, island. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. We, we've come into these different societies where they're in different ways, they have figured out how to make the issues of uh, who someone is work. But each one of them has fallen apart at some point when a certain uh, aspect has been introduced. And in this book, she goes like, okay, what happens when we put an enemy on your doorstep that says you can live, but they have to go, you guys decide. And then the group decides to have a democracy about it. Like, mm-hmm. at least for a little while. Like, it's, it's a really difficult and deep uh, piece to get into. Right. Yeah, there, you know, I, I suspect, and I know I'm going way, way out on a limb here, but I suspect that N.K. Jemison and I would have a lot to disagree about politically right uh, and yes. that's totally fine i would actually love to have dinner with her and just you know like hash things out i, I think that would be a lot of fun she seems very interesting um but one thing that she and i i think can agree on is that democracy ain't everything that a lot of people you know uh think it's cracked up to be so it's not the end all be all there's a great scene so the the scene you're talking about the scene i'm talking about is at the end like you said um the the stills can live you can come with us and live in our calm but the origins have got to go so you know kill them or get rid of them or whatever um or we'll we'll kill them uh and so there's this big vote scheduled Mm -hmm. and it's like the town council basically is going to get together and decide what to do about this issue and it's chapters and chapters long where we're getting up to this vote you know what are they going to decide what what's going to happen uh at this uh, town council vote and finally, we get to the morning of, and all, all this stuff has happened. I Again, I'm being flippant. Things happen in this book, right? Stuff has happened up to then. And the morning of the vote, Essen, uh, or is that what she's going by these days? Essen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Essen goes to the town council meeting and bursts in, and it was like, no vote. This, this ain't happening. Mm-hmm. She destroys and, the ballot box. That's right. Yeah, she destroys the ballot box. She has killed somebody, um, you know, in a fit of memory rage about her son you know mm-hmm. and, and essentially what she comes in and says is that the issue of who is a person and who you know who counts in this community is not up for a vote yeah and uh and that really resonated with me i thought that was really good there are some issues that are beyond majoritarianism mm-hmm. right and so that's that's a moment that i really liked and appreciated i don't know what about you sarah thoughts feelings um about that scene in particular yeah yeah let's stick with that one for a little while yeah i mean i i thought it was a a really helpful kind of illustration of taking something that you might think is just a good like democracy like let's put it to a vote let's you know, there's not one person making this decision, you know, from on high. So supposedly that's better. And just kind of saying, well, but what is the material consequence of saying, no, you get to vote on whether these adults and children and your community members will die? Like you, you what is the consequence of empowering a group of people to decide whether other people can live Um I, I just I thought it it worked really well and it did it definitely felt like the build up to it was kind of 
long, but <laughs> like I said, chapters and chapters. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but no, I appreciated that that was folded into the story. Yeah, it's. I, I think we have a tendency um, in certainly in America and I think in Western societies generally to kind of fetishize democracy. Like, mm. oh, it's you know, but this is what the people want. And it's like I don't. I on some issues I don't care what the people want. Right. You know, and and you shouldn't care what the people want. Right. So I, you know, it, it's a thornier issue than than it's uh, maybe being laid out as in this book. You know, that's it's pretty simple. <laughs> you know, am right. I a person? You don't get to vote. Yeah, on that. exactly. Like the, um, the question of what are the things that are beyond majority vote. You know, that's there, thorny. Exactly. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of disagreement on that. Yeah, yeah. And she, that's the thing is with with Jemison though, she's very clearly tied a a lot of personal experience, a lot of the. Uh, race issues into her stories with this and that is very much a portion of that history and that story and it's it's definitely a, a ground that we get hesitant to tread on from not being able to speak to it well but watching the perspective of saying my being human is not up for a debate when it ties into real world things like literally at one point in time you know people having a percentage assi- assigned to them like or a fraction you know mm-hmm. three-fifths of a person I think like having to vote on moments like that, it just... It, yeah, it feels icky. It does. And I appreciate that she's not shying away from moments like that in these stories because it if you allow it to, it gives you a moment to think and reflect and say, okay, has there ever been a moment like this in reality that I should be aware of? And sadly, yeah, there's a few of them. But we, you know, I don't know. It's something we don't tend to spend a lot of time on. Yeah, and that's, I, I mean... Uh, that's why a book like this is valuable. Um, I don't, I, I, I doubt that I even picked up on a lot of the stuff that she was throwing in, you know, as yeah. far as the, the racial themes or whatever uh, you might have. Um, I, I'm sure a lot of them just go over my head based on who I am. Um, but it's still, it's an opportunity to consider those issues, right? Even mm-hmm. if, uh, like I said, she and I would disagree on a lot of things, it's still valuable to, bring it up and think about it so and it's a way for an author it's something that i've come to appreciate a lot more lately is authors and artists who take the time to tell a story like this or to add those elements from their own personal perspective gives you a chance to better understand where they're coming from and sometimes it feels like sometimes those moments feel ham-fisted or, mm-hmm. or heavy-handed or anything like that. It's natural a lot, a lot of times for that to feel that way. But that's if you allow yourself the time to actually empathize and say, like, okay, this is coming from your perspective and your experience. How can I better understand that? Art is an incredible way. Literature this is a, is a great way to allow yourself into that world. Sure. And so I, I've come to appreciate it more, especially yeah. as of late. And with N.K. Jemison being an author who's really stood out to me for that. Well, and let's let's shift gears a little bit and stick with that scene, but mm-hmm. go to something that Sarah mentioned, which was, you know, there's, there's a lot of buildup to this, right? Mm-hmm. Did it, for you, Sarah, um, was it disappointing to have so much buildup to the vote, the vote, the vote? What's the vote going to be? You know, how are, how's everybody going to vote, vote, no vote? You know, uh, yeah. how, did, how did you feel about that? Was it did you feel like it was just not enough payoff or was it OK? It didn't feel disappointing to me. No, I I think. 
because something still happened at the critical juncture. Mm-hmm. You know, it might not have been a vote, but there was like a dramatic, climactic showdown kind of a thing. And given that Essen is like our protagonist or one, you know, one of two in this novel, like I, I was glad to see that moment where she could really like shine. You know, I, I didn't mind it at all that that the vote didn't actually take place. Yeah. I'm with you. As long as something happens, Mm -hmm. um, it it, it might've been weird if it was like, we're going to have a vote, have a vote, and then two hours before the vote, the army attacks, yeah, and then you just, just like, like completely abandon yeah. it. But there was a confrontation. Yeah, so they, I, they, I felt still, they still got to that point, and there was an unexpected turn of events. But yeah, it wasn't circumvented by like, uh-oh, you know, vote canceled for unrelated <laughs> reasons. Um, yeah, something yeah. still took place. Cool. Well, uh, Sarah, you came armed with a notebook. And I've, <laughs> I've got... Um, it's a deadly weapon. Uh, I've got a bunch of questions and comments from Discord, but I wanted to give you a chance if you had anything that you wanted to bring up before we get to yeah. listener comments. Well, TBH, my notebook is a list of names and who they are. So <laughs> one of the biggest barriers Fan- to entry which is, for me. Which is tough, yeah. Yeah, with fantasy. And with, you know, a book that I, I read it a, a few months ago and all that is being like, no, remind me is that the name of a city or a disease a disease of some kind is that the bug um but i do have on my phone um just a list of of some things that stood out to me um i'm trying to see it it was interesting to me how you know in this book we have essen and we have how did they pronounce it in the audiobook nasen nasen okay um, her daughter, who also in origin, yeah, abducted by her father, he's trying to like, you know, make her not an origin anymore. He he's heard that there are these people who can do that. Um, and I deeply loved having Nasen as part of this story and getting so much time with her, so much time from her perspective. Um, my favorite parts of the book for sure. Um, and I felt like. Nasen being a child was a very useful um I felt like Jemison used that fact to kind of express some of the naive but also naive and innocent you know that's kind of like both of those things in one the naive um and innocent ideas that people have about prejudice or about how the world works but they were so earnest and so sincere you know she's she um at one point, she's talking to... Let me consult my notebook. <laughs> Shafa. Shafa. Only one of the main characters. <laughs> Good old Shafa. Um, I always want to say Jaffa, and I don't know if that comes from somewhere else. No, no, but no. You're thinking of Joff Wu. Oh, I I very well could be. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, sorry. I Ryan is, I am. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say, Ryan is always thinking of Joff Wu. <laughs> How could we not be? He haunts me in the night. <laughs> oh, no. No, 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 no. No. Okay. Sorry. Go but on. She's talking to Shafa and Shafa is sharing with her kind of his past life as a guardian and how he would hurt kids like her, mm-hmm. you know, in order to teach them, in order to kind of break them. And she kind of says like, even like you would have done that to me or, he, or she says something like even me and Shafa kind of says, yeah, 
even you. And then in the in the following paragraphs, it says something about how Nasun told herself that even if he did those horrible things, he didn't mean them. And even if he had done that horrible thing to her, he wouldn't have meant it. Like it's that that idea of like, well, but his his heart wouldn't he he did he wouldn't want to hurt me even if he did hurt me. Um, and you know that's so recognizable i think you know whether we're talking about somebody a situation where you are on the receiving end of hurt or you're just talking about like big terrible things that are happening in other places we tend to want to make the actions less bad by saying but like they were such good people or or their heart was in the right place or whatever you know um so that was just one example i just i appreciated that that real openness that we got from from this child protagonist, I guess that stood sure. out to me. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. There's uh, the moment when she kind of uh, gives up on her father as yeah. her father, and we're going to talk about that. Actually, you know what? No, let's just talk about it right now because cool. it kind of gets to your point of yeah. the the childlike view mm-hmm. uh, that she has because she's what eleven? I think she turns eleven while they're on the road, something like that. And that's a it's a brilliant age to pick because you still at that age you still have that childlike uh, quality, but you also are starting to understand just a little mm-hmm. bit about things beyond literally yourself, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a and brilliant you're starting age to, to be pick. a little bit introspective. You're starting to notice and observe your own feelings, right? Like, right. So anyway, they're on the road. She and uh, Jija. G- Mm-hmm. Now Gija. I'm the one who's like, oh, that's one of the main characters, whatever. Jija, uh, they're on the road, and um, he is, he's hes very threatening several times, as they, especially as they start their journey and then as they end their journey together. Uh, but he's been very threatening, physically threatening a few times, and um, then this moment comes up. And this is, uh, this is from Kiptan, who says, this quote always breaks my heart. Daddy, she says again, this time putting more of a needy whine into her voice. It is the thing that has swayed him these times when he has come near to turning on her, remembering that she is his little girl, reminding him that he has been, up to today, a good father. It is manipulation. Something of her is warped out of true by this moment, and from now on, all her acts of affection toward her father will be calculated, performative. Her childhood dies for all intents and purposes, but that is better than all of her dying, she knows. And uh, yeah, like Kiptan says, oh, yeah, And that's one of, I think, Jemison's strengths is those little personal moments that Mm -hmm. she delivers, you know, like a knife to the gut. Yeah, Uh, It's really, really tough to read. But um, Kiptan's question uh, with that quote was, how do you feel about what it says about the coping mechanisms of abused children? Mm-hmm. And well, it, it, that, this is something that I do not have firsthand experience with. I lived a very normal, happy, abuse-free childhood, mm-hmm. except for the time my mom swatted me with a piano book because I cried when I was practicing the piano. <laughs> <Shut up. laughs> Other than that, I'm good. No, but uh, but it felt real to me. I guess. Yeah. I again, I don't have the perspective, but it felt real. What about you, Ryan? This is, all of Nasun's story is really, really hard, um, especially dealing with 
the abuse. We've already knew that Gigi was abusive. We learned in book one from the perspective of uh, Esun about the sort of relationship that he beat his son to death. And mm-hmm. so we already have him as bad guy. Um, so to take the time in this book to run it through the lens of the child and make him into a kind of good guy for a little, like a bad good guy, good bad guy. Well, it's a, well kind uh, of the idea of like, his, his heart was, his in, the heart right was in the right place. Yeah. He he killed his son, but he didn't mean it. Or that could be something that that she would tell herself in order to help her feel more safe. Because she's this is still her dad, and he's still in charge of protecting her. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I think that's a big part of the heartbreak is that we can see as adults being able to fully process. But if you've ever interacted with a child coming from an abusive situation, uh, it is absolutely incredible what their cognitive ability is to shape the world around them into what they needed to be to keep going. Mm. Um, and I, it, it's both heartbreaking and uh, amazing. And then knowing what they're going to have to go through to heal, Nasun especially in this, um, when she makes the decision and has to leave Jija forever and kill him off, basically, how do you, what is she going to do going forward? Well, the first thing she does is she replaces his, her father figure. <laughs> right. She's like, I can't go without a father figure. Mm-hmm. It's got to be Shafa. Which is a thousand percent normal. Yeah. Right. They, nobody in the world wouldn't do that. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, were you going to say something else? No, go ahead. Continue. I, I just think that's, that is where it's in, interesting. Yeah. No, I, again, it kind of gets back to what I was saying earlier about this being a brilliant age for her to pick for Nasun because, you know... Uh, an 11 year old isn't going to write the paragraph the way that N.K. Jemison did mm-hmm. but um, but an 11 year old can come to those thoughts and those conclusions uh, you know even to the idea of like of some internal monologue saying my childhood is gone mm-hmm. where you could see it in somebody who you know, a, a child who's uh, father leaves or whose mother dies or whatever and they suddenly they just know innately I've got to grow up I'm done yeah. like, I don't have anybody else to take care of me I'm on my own uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, so even if it's not in the uh, amazing prose that we get here you still I, I still see that as possible yeah from mm-hmm. her perspective right mm-hmm. I think she also has there's another aspect to her story that really jumped out to me uh, that it is part of the abuse, but it's not what it's not the way that a lot of people in the past have viewed abuse. And it's the fact that he Gigi allows her to live be, and does all the things he does because he believes that she can be cured mm. of being an origin. Yeah, and literally says, "I'm going to take you to a place where they can teach you to not be an origin." And how many children have been through that experience, especially? It, for like in reality here, like LGBTQ families, things like that, where it's don't be who you are. Right. You know, uh, I think that, again, Jemison reaching into a, the stories in the hearts of a lot of people who have dealt with being ostracized for what they feel, what what we feel is who they are. Some, some innate quality. It's, there's a lot of yeah. common ground in this, in this story, she focuses a lot on uh, saying, who gets to decide who is human and who gets to decide who I am and why and why is who I am not enough? That's uh, it's a constant theme through the whole series, but especially in this book with you know, we've already talked about the vote, but with Nasun's story especially, it's she has to come to a point where she says, "I am who I am," and if you can't accept that, 
in this case, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Is that all? Is it? But yeah, it's it's a really dark place. And again, I think the age, like you're saying, this is a really good age to it. This is about the right age where that conflict starts to have severe uh, problems. It causes severe problems with child when they're being constantly told, you are not what you say you are. Or should not be should not what, be. You, what mm-hmm. you in fact are. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I wonder if, if we're getting toward the twin questions, maybe there are more, but I'm hearing two really consistent questions. It's who deserves life and who deserves love? Mm. And the answer is everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, reality is that not everybody gets these things, even well, if they deserve it. You knock a certain, a few of the levels out of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all of a sudden that love and everything that we all need is no longer, you're, it's no longer as attainable. Because you're still working on steps one and two, the you know right, right, survival right. pieces like that, and that's yeah. that's kind of what she's done is, I've she's knocked a few of those steps out by putting a world uh, where n- there is no more security there, there is no safety on that. So how do you, how do you still attain those higher level uh, goals, uh, needs when? these other three steps have been knocked out from under you. Right, right. Sarah, do you have any thoughts on this before we move on? Yeah, I do. So I I don't know if I, if you two would agree or if I possibly read over something or forgot something, but one thing that stood out to me is that Nasen, at least as I understand the, the plot of the book, is not an abused child, you know, as we tend to think of that. She's not somebody who has grown up being being hit, hit, being belittled. She's been very, you know, she and her dad have had like a really close relationship and not that he hasn't been harsh, but it sounds like in a way that is accepted and expected in their world, you know? Um, And so this turn where suddenly she is at odds with her father and her father has like an urge to kill her, you know, that's new. And so I wonder how much of her ability, you know, I wish I knew more about child development or, or how common it is for abused children to have a moment when they say like, you're no longer my parent and I'm not going to regard you that way. I think it would be much harder to do that if you've been abused from the time you're very, very young, as opposed to su- having such a clear contrast Yesterday, my dad loved me completely. Today, I'm afraid of him. I wonder if that switch is what allows a person to say, like, this is not okay. I'm not okay with you treating me this way. I am going to be strategic in my interactions with you. I'm not going to seek your love. I'm just going to try to survive. You know, like that that moment to me felt very particular to somebody who has a core sense of self that would be very hard to develop if you have been abused as the default your whole upbringing. Yeah, I think that's very smart. That's a good point. Uh, I don't have anything else to add to that other than great point. Um, <laughs> I have a question though. Were I felt like book one was leaving a little bit of a door open. Maybe it was just my own hope, but it was leaving a little bit of a door open to find out that Jija actually did not kill the little right, boy because it was off screen because it was off screen you know Essen comes home what's happened she puts the clues together all oh, my husband must have done this like it was leaving a little bit of a door open 
And to me, I felt like it was almost leading the reader to that to the conclusion that they were about to have like a surprise. Were either of you surprised reading the second book to realize like, oh, no, like it it, it happened exactly like Essen thought? Ryan? Surprised? Um, not really. I do remember feeling that same thought of like, well, it's entirely possible that we're going to get to book three and the sun's going to come back around and be the one, you know, somehow this is going <laughs> to roll back around yeah. or it's uh, Gigi is going to be turned out to be the good guy and, right. that, you know, something else happened. But right. I, I'm o- I, I'm okay with it. I don't feel I don't feel like it's a wasted Chekhov's gun or anything. No, I, no. It, but I just don't think she's that kind of author. Mm-hmm. If this were if this were um, the Broken Earth trilogy as written by Brent Weeks, we would mm-hmm. have had eight thousand rugs pulled out from under our feet by now, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. this would be one of them. Like, oh, he he either didn't kill him or um, or it was somebody else, right? You know, right. like I I I kept thinking maybe somebody else killed the little boy and killed the dad or, or like kidnapped both the dad and the daughter, you know, like I, I right. was like, somehow it, we're going to be reassured that a father would never do this to their child. Even right. if they are like part of this, you know, dismissed and, and hated cast, it would never happen. Like you want, but again, Jemison's not that kind of writer either. Who's going to be like, no, things are better than you think. <laughs> exactly. No, that's yeah. That's what I was going to say is in the hands of somebody else. Maybe I would have expected yeah. it kind of that, typical twist Mm -hmm. Uh, but from her from what i read in the first book and you know now in this book it's like yeah now that's that's she's (laughs) this is a uh this is i don't know do do we call this book cynical um do we call it uh pessimistic uh yeah you know what i mean disillusioned i think disillusioned okay something i don't know i i hate when people are like it's not I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. Like, but there's a part of me that wants to be like, this isn't pessimistic. It's just like a realistic, I mean, for a fantasy novel, it's a realistic depiction of social systems and, and interactions and, and human psychology. I, I don't, I don't feel like worse about the world after reading this book, but I don't think there's any sort of like hopeful veil Some over arc. anything. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I, um, uh, an author's responsibility is to tell the truth as they see it. Mm. And the way that she's writing this book, I have absolutely no doubt that that is what she's doing. She is telling me the truth as she sees it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if she and I ever get to break bread together, which I would love, <laughs> then, you know, then I would try to relate the truth as I see it, you know, and, and we'd mm-hmm. argue about uh, that back and forth right but anyway so I, I feel like she's accomplishing her purpose at least in that right so Ryan you look like you got thoughts I'm just piecing together my feelings on whether or not I feel the book is cynical or pessimistic or any I do like the idea that it is it, it feels as this is a very real response to the way that things are happening uh, in the story um, but we do have characters who are cynical and who are those? And so I feel like... <laughs> Did somebody say Alabaster or was that just me? Yeah, we should get to him and his oh, yeah. his uh, decisions in this book. Because we weren't happy with him in the last one. Um, oh, I, I wasn't. And Kiptan remembers that. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get there. But I, that's the thing. Like the, a tone of the, book, the tone of the book is set heavily by the perspectives in which we sit. And so there is a tone of cynicism to it because of the way that Essen views things. Uh, but when you get into Nasun's view, Nasun isn't cynical. 
she's survivalist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but none of them are happy-go-lucky things that we're miring <laughs> ourselves in. You know, we're not right. You know that. So I think that's that's why the book might have that heavier feel to it. But doesn't mean there's not moments of hope in there because I do think that um, Alabaster sacrificing himself at the end of this, not at the exact end, but Alabaster sacrificing himself to save Essun and to save everybody else and to stop Essun from doing what she was doing uh, is a sign of someone who changed and grew in the process. Because I think, yeah, he, I do think that he grew and changed over this book more so than maybe any of the other characters. And and by grew, you mean the opposite, right? <laughs> yes. Slowly. <laughs> Slowly being eaten turned away. Turned to stone and eaten by his companion stone eater. So yeah. let's let's talk about um, Alabaster a little bit. This is, again, Kip Tan, uh, who asked a question specifically for me, but I please, let's open up the floor <laughs> on this one. Um, Kip Tan wants to single me out. I'll show him. Uh, he says... Given that we now know that Alabaster wasn't necessarily trying to end humanity, how do you view his action of creating the rift? Is it at least mildly better, knowing that he wanted to destroy the Sanzid imperial culture prior to ending the cycle of the seasons, and that the rift was created as an energy source to catch the moon? Which is dope, by the way. I just love <laughs> this, like. You know, we're we're left with the pseudo cliffhanger. Have you ever heard of the moon in book one? And I just thought that uh, that didn't work for me. Uh, but now that we actually get some of this, uh, some explanation behind the mythology, I think it's really cool. Um, so, sorry, that's that that's one of my uh, moments that Sarah was talking to me about earlier. About uh, was it the Chris Farley sketch? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> Do you remember that scene where you blew up the car? That was pretty cool. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I love the whole moon thing now. That's great. Um, okay, now as far as Alabaster's decision, <laughs> I I retain my earlier um, dislike of his methods. So the idea here that Kiptan is getting at is that it he wanted to destroy the Sanzid Imperial culture prior to ending the cycle of the seasons. Okay, so do I understand it? Sure. Sure. Did he just sink how many millions of people into uh, a rift in the earth in a, you know, a horrible, grisly death? Uh, you know, in the, the fiery bowels of the earth's mantle? Or, you know, I don't know, however far down it went. Uh, no, I, 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 do not, I, I do not think better of him for it. Do I understand it a little bit better? Yes, I do. Uh, could he have opened the rift anywhere? You know, it's, I guess this is the whole thing, uh, you know, this gets into my whole spiel about uh, revolutionary attitudes um, from the last one. And, and again, you know, I'm happy to be alone out on an island on this, but uh, no, I don't think it's, um, I don't think killing millions and millions of people to uh, dismantle whatever system you find uh, oppressive to be worthwhile. Change the culture. You know, find some way to do it, but uh, to to kill millions and millions of unwitting people? No, pass. So. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Any thoughts on that re-atomic bombs? Dropping atomic bombs, mm. killing thousands, millions of people, completely changing, you know, not and not even just people who died, but people who survived, but right. were so hurt. Um, 
just because they they lived under an, a regime that that you had a problem with and that was causing harm like would you say don't do that like change the system another way don't hurt innocent people right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, my response to that would be it's a category error. Um, I, I don't have very strong feelings one way or the other about what should have been done uh, with the atomic bomb, you know, during World War II. Um, but I will say it was during World War II. The two nations at war um, and this decision was made in order to end the war. Um, there, There isn't that same kind of declared war situation this guy just walks in and you know people are living their lives and he wipes them all out um so i i think it's an interesting point it's an interesting parallel but not quite right hmm. i guess i just don't know what difference it makes to people who are living in japan or or you know if it had been people who living in the u.s and there you know had been a bomb from russia during mm-hmm. the cold or whatever like they didn't declare war they didn't decide i am going to live in a country during a war right you no, know I, yeah any more than the people in this book decided i am going to live in a post-apocalyptic world where we have really weird seasons every hundred years you know anyway <laughs> Not to get too controversial, but no, it, no, it, like as you were explaining point. it, like the atomic bomb thing just came to mind, and and you know it's a horrible, horrible thing that you you know regardless of 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 your uh, opinions again on should have shouldn't have happened, justified not justified, like it was a horrible thing mm-hmm. for untold numbers of people, and maybe that's like a fitting analogy for uh for what happens in the books right yeah i don't know ryan thoughts feelings do you do you dare <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> let's talk about I, atomic uh, bombs <laughs> i switched it over to him and watch <laughs> him go oh no oh boy <laughs> not me no i i will say that i do have a little more forgiveness isn't the right word but tolerance maybe of alabaster knowing this um Again, very similar in what you said. You know, do I, I understand it better? I don't like that millions of people were killed. Uh, I don't like that it was done on the will of one man. But I'm a little more tolerant of it. Uh, yeah, this is this. kind of the opposite of the uh, democracy isn't so sacred point, where it's like, but maybe a few people could have voted yeah. on, you know, destroying the earth. <laughs> you know, maybe ask somebody else. Um. There, there's a really easy out on this, and I don't remember it being there. Uh, where it's no, I had to do that because that's where the power is. Because it, it, he does talk about this as a power source, right? To catch the moon, and I don't remember anything saying that there, where that that was the only place where it existed. Because that's the easy out to say, oh no, he had to do it because that's where the magic crystal full of atomic power that he's going to tap into <laughs> to catch the moon as it flies by. I could see that being the case if uh, it has something to do with it. So Humanus was where the fulcrum was and there was one of those um, sockets there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So maybe there is something to that. Uh, like it, it had to be here because it had to be, you know, the, the socket had to be the epicenter. So uh, maybe. Maybe there's some practical explanation. And, and and in that case, if if that is the case, I could find it a little bit more forgivable where it's like, look, the this 
situation with the fifth seasons. Every time the moon whips by and it devastates the earth, uh, we've got to stop this somehow. And, you know, we've got to make sacrifices now in order to exactly. save people. Similar, uh, similar to your atomic bomb sure. thing. The idea is, yeah, this is horrific and thousands or millions of people will die. But we have to do this in order to forego more death and destruction mm-hmm. and, you know, the wiping out of civilization every few hundred years or whatever. Mm-hmm. So so I could, in that case, find it a little bit more palatable, perhaps. Um, but yeah, I, I don't remember that being the case. Uh, oh, what was I going to say? Ryan, you look like you have something else while I'm trying to recapture my train of thought, like, you know, some runaway cowboy. There is a lot of this story that plot line wise that we haven't really dived into that specific what <laughs> that specifically has to do with the plan uh, oh that's that's what it was thank oh, you for bringing welcome. me back yeah you're welcome no that what i was gonna say was um one of the things that bothers me about what alabaster did was that he you know i was joking about the anti-democratic thing a moment ago but uh but no he didn't gather together a bunch of people he it wasn't like okay here are our roles in the remaking of the world, I'm going to be the guy who's going to turn to stone because he opens up the the Earth's crust, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going to be the one who gathers this, and you, you're going to learn to in, uh, interact with the obelisks, obelisks. And you know, it, like it was just, I guess, way, 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 way too risky. He's like, I'm going to do this, and then maybe, maybe I'll happen somebody. to run into the one other origin <laughs> yeah. in the world that I know of. Who, who's who capable can, who of can do the next thing <laughs> exactly so yeah that that did bother me or it's like it's it, called faith craig is that what it is <laughs> it's called faith and i also wonder <laughs> i wonder again to be honest like i really zoned out during all of the plan stuff like <laughs> like okay there's there's obelisks and you have to use them in a special way like that, that that's just not what grabs me but I wonder, was there any sort of like deep wisdom from the stone eaters that was informing that choice and to be like, here's what you have to do. And trust me, like things are going to things are going to fall into place later. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just thinking like the stone eaters seem to know a lot of stuff. And they're very quiet. They sure are. They're very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. Um, To answer your question, is there reassurances from them that no, this is what you need to do? I don't recall there being a whole lot in there that was like, yeah, Alabaster, this is the right plan. Just trust me on this. Um, I I do think that they do enable him and Mm -hmm. they help him with it, which is a little bit of the nudge that he needs to feel like it's the right direction to go. But I don't remember that being a, a big part of it. I think a lot of it falls on the shoulders of the fact that Alabaster knows he's probably the only person in the world who can do what needs to be done. And that does give you a say in how you things should go about being done, um, to a certain extent. Yeah, like. I'm, but but the so back to what I was just saying a moment ago. He's the only person who can do what needs to be done, but he's also the only person who can then capitalize on what needs to further be done. As far as he knows, he's the only person who can do it, and he's just committed suicide by doing the first thing. So yeah, it, it just bothered me. Bothered me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I don't know. I don't remember how well he knew that it was going to be the end of him. Like I, I there was an yeah. awareness of turning to stone and and going through the process 
that he was going to go through. But I don't remember it being like, well, I guess that's the end of that plan. Um, and I, the other question I have right now, as I think back to it, is uh, Essun, when we first met her, she was like, what, level four? Yeah, four ringer. Four ringer. Yeah, it was like Alabaster who gave her 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 fifth and sixth rings, like on the road, right, or maybe on the island. Yeah, it's it's working. It was working her up, and I'm curious as to because you guys made the comment like the one other person in the entire world who could pull this off. I don't know if it's necessarily that she is a chosen one in that sense that she's that like she is that powerful, or if it's just the process she's in the right mindset that it allows her to go through the process to get as powerful as Alabaster is, whereas all the other origins have been trained in a too, different too way fulcrumized. Yeah. yeah to deal with that um so that it, for him it's like once i find someone that i can train i can go on with my plan with on this um and no honestly the plan doesn't make a lot of sense other than catch the moon use rocks in sky um <laughs> i'm not gonna say that is the easiest plan to follow by any stretch of the <laughs> that imagination was, that was uh it was very artfully said thank you yeah <laughs> um all right so i am shocked at how long we've already been talking and we've got a few more discord things to get through so lady sweden would like for sarah to respond to the following question um do you see any influences from octavia butler in jemison's work i don't think ryan you and i haven't read any Ooh. um yeah exactly uh so Guys. so Sorry, sarah that's, that's not that's not in a that's not a slight at octavia <laughs> butler that's I just i just it's a slight against himself for yes. not being well read my heathen self and, and neither am i so sarah take it away so octavia butler uh i've read three of her books she wrote a number i i have no idea how many books she wrote but i read parable of excuse me parable of the talents Parable of the Sower, which are related. They're in a series. And then I've read Kindred. I think the similarity that I see has to do with like interiority of the characters. Um, and I, I noticed, you know, in in Jemison's writing and also in Butler's that you have characters who you get to know very well internally. They're, you're not just sort of observing them from the outside. You're privy to their thoughts and their motivations and, and their fears and their suspicions and all of that stuff. Um, and you're also getting a real sense of like all the things that they're thinking about and all the, all the uh, steps they go through in deciding what to say and to whom and when. Like there's, there's a real um, politicalness to the characters not in the sense of like they're in favor of certain you know reforms Policies or whatever but or, yeah. they they think in a in a strategic way they weigh out their options they're pragmatic um and so i noticed that but i also i think butler and jemison they're really <sighs> i i as i've mentioned previously i'm not really a fantasy reader in general but Octavia Butler wrote uh, fantasy. So does Jemison, obviously. And I think they both have an approach to fantasy that makes it somehow more readable for somebody who might not be into fantasy generally. You know, it's it's just a little more grounded, um, not 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 so out there. Little, I, and I don't I don't know another way to describe it. Just like easier to follow, more accessible. Something it's, like that. It's actually, it's interesting you say that because I find 
I find it more difficult to follow what she's doing mm. than some other authors. Interesting. Um, it's uh, not not impossible or anything, but I I, I listened to a lot of the audiobook on this mm-hmm. one because I was trying to get through get through it pretty quickly. And there were some times where I'd have to go back. I'm like, all right, f- five minutes. I need what just happened. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Um, and I, I found myself doing that a lot more with her than I have with other fantasy authors who may have more names in there, you know, or whatever, you know, may have more world building, although there's plenty of that here. But um, in her case, I, I just find her strength, whatever her strength is, it's not the kind that uh, makes it easy for me to follow her story. Mm. Um, I don't know, Ryan? No, I, I'm in a similar vein. Uh, the way that I've been trying to piece together a, a visual to compare it, um, and right now what's coming to my mind to my mind is her fantasy has a more realistic weight to it. The way that I view for something, for example, like the Lord of the Rings movies, they're fantasy, but it, there's no like sparkles floating behind a fairy. There's no bright right. coloration. That's a lot of fantasy kind of enjoys being in that bright color, being in that, that yes. side of fantasy. Whereas the Lord of the Rings films sat more in the realism of what we connect to, but it's still considered fantasy. It's still that situation. And that's how I feel about Jemison's work is that it's more akin to that, to that styling. What if I, what if I put it this way in even the best, uh, in most serious fantasy and award-winning fantasy, there is a temptation to almost wink and nod at the reader and like, or remind them that they're reading fantasy. Like mm-hmm. you said, bright colors or, you know, just a, overly fantastic situations or magic systems or whatever the case Don't may be. Don't forget this isn't Earth. Right, right. Whereas Jemison never even comes close to apologizing for writing a fantasy book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes any sense, but maybe that's kind of what you're getting at. Um, yeah. It makes sense in my head anyway. <laughs> so that's good enough for me. <laughs> All right, let's go on to... Uh, let's do... Uh, let's do another one from Lady Sweden uh, because this one actually, I was reading this, these questions to Sarah before we started and this one got a good reaction out of her. Uh, Lady Sweden says, reading this book, I personally was very annoyed about why Alabaster was so slow to tell Essen about important things during the education part of their relationship in this book. Is this something you shared? Can you see any reason for it? And I read this to you, Sarah, <laughs> and you were like, yes, why can't they just talk to I each other? I went like, <sighs> a very exaggerated Thing. Like, I absolutely found it annoying, but I'm glad that you read that question to me beforehand because it gave me time to kind of sit with it. And it's like, I, at this point, I feel like, yes, it was so annoying. And I'm also so satisfied with Jemison's decision to write it that way because it makes sense. Like, it makes sense for who they are as people. It makes sense for this world that it's hard for... they. These are two people who came together through like forced breeding as part of a, a weird enslaved cast, like their, their history together, you know, and that's just the beginning go, we can rehash the entire first novel. Their history together is such that like they share a bond, but they also like, don't really know if they can trust each other. They don't like each other that much. Like it's hard to talk to somebody about things that, 
you don't even necessarily have language for like it's only recently that uh alabaster has figured out like oh i call this other thing magic like there's it's not something that he's practiced talking to anybody about and so for him to have to figure out how to talk about it in such pain with this person who he kind of like both deeply values and hates like of course their communication is going to be really right. awful and also Essen's just like not a great communicator that, well that's true <laughs> she and he she does something jemison does something really interesting with Essen specifically uh, and in this book and that is to put her in situations where she recognizes and we as readers recognize um her acting out what happened to her before mm -hmm. so we saw that with the way that she educated nasun mm -hmm. in her childhood you know breaking her hand and you know teaching her about the rings and lifting rocks and you know whatever jedi stuff they were doing in the you know i don't know uh, in the woods um and then she so she is acting out what was done to her in her childhood and um she does a similar thing with um it with alabaster when Al she's frustrated because alabaster isn't just telling her tell me what i need to know um and then she catches herself doing the exact same thing to other people who she's trying to teach where she says something along the lines of oh maybe this is what alabaster was doing he was giving me what he thought i was ready for mm -hmm. what what he knew i was ready for yeah. and, and held back what he knew i couldn't do anything with at the time um and i think this is actually really clever on Jen jemison's part because this is it's kind of a, a trope at this point. I mean, we talked about it on our Wheel of Time episodes years ago, where it's like, if people actually communicated, the story would have been over halfway through book one. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're done. You, you pool your resources, communicate a little bit, poof, no more dark one. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, everybody's too prideful or whatever. Mm -hmm. Basically, we need more story and we need more conflict. So I'm just going to have them not tell each other things. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's an easy way to create conflict. Uh, but she so she does that and then kind of like shines a little light on that um, and is a little bit more clever about it and kind of shows you as a reader why it's actually, like you said, Sarah, believable that these people aren't communicating as well as maybe we want them to. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, anyway, Ryan, any other thoughts on this one? It's just interesting. Uh, having been in a similar situation myself where. Uh, as soon as you learn something that you feel like you should, like, why didn't you just tell me that? Uh, and having to teach on the other end and trying to give people exactly what they need in terms of, you know, this is what you're ready for. Everyone wants the the knowledge to be a buffet. They want it all, especially nowadays. They want all the information right there available so that they can sample it when they're ready, not realizing that you have to build up to it. And so I, I actually, they are very poor communicators, but I understand exactly why on both sides like, both sides of it, why it's frustrating and why you'd go that route. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, good. We've got a few more minutes. We're running up on our time now and we have a few more comments, but I, I suspect a couple of these would actually save pretty well to book three. So I'll skip a couple of them. Sorry, Kip Dan. Um, but I do want to get to a couple more from Merlia and Chesky. Uh, the first one from Merlia, kind of on this subject or adjacent to it, when you consider how Essen was brought up, or how Essen brought up Nasen with the same level of brutality that Shafa had used back when Essen was Demaya, oh boy, this is confusing. Okay, start again. All right, hang in there. Ready? <laughs> Essen, Here we go. Yeah. When you consider how Essen brought up Nasen 
with the same level of brutality that Shafa had used back when Essen was Demaya. Got it. <laughs> Always doing it because he loved her, you know, quote unquote, because he loved her. How did you feel when Nasen ended up under new Shafa's guidance in his school? Um, that, that, that was a great moment when there's this kind of ghostly figure running through the woods, saving her and Jija, and it mm-hmm. turns out to be Shafa. Oh my gosh, you know, your yeah. mind is blown. It's a great little moment. Um, but this does actually get to, I want to say it was Kiptan who was also asking something about, um, about uh, the, the antagonist, how we feel about um, him as an antagonist in this book. And I just don't, I, I didn't see him as an antagonist anymore. I, I still have those leftover feelings from book one. So it's hard for me to trust him and his motivations. And I don't know what this whole like... Um, uh, what's what's the name of the the oh shoot the book with the shadow that is chasing the kid? Um, oh, the shadow that's chasing the kid. The, yeah, yeah. Shoot. Unfortunately, doesn't narrow it down so <laughs> we much. Just, we just read it, and for some reason, you know how it is when something flees your mind. Um, Wizard of Earthsea. That's what it was. Is the Wizard of Earthsea? I couldn't, couldn't. I'm so impressed at how quickly you remembered that. Honestly, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> get out of here. Um, anyway, what what was I even saying? What was I? You were talking about Shafa and as an antagonist, and you didn't necessarily. Oh yeah, no, no, no. That's so. There's something like living in his neck, right? Whatever device or stone or something. Yeah, he's got his little devil in there, and so I. That's one of the questions I was talking about in my pseudo recap of the book. There are a lot of questions to answer in book three. What is going on with Shafa? Because. At the beginning of the book, he's like the prologue, right? He survives, mm-hmm. and then he's infected with Satan, because uh, yeah, that's how they talk about Satan. Um, <laughs> he's infected with Satan, and then through the rest of the book, he's a much better person, seemingly, than he was in book one, or at least more aware. At least that's how I perceived it. I don't know. Am I off base here, Ryan? No, not really. I wouldn't say that he, I don't think he was infected with Satan, uh, but he does surrender <laughs> himself mm-hmm. to the the great powerful force that allows the, and it saves him. But it doesn't necessarily, there's nothing afterwards that says that it resides or like, I don't remember it like him having flare ups or rashes or anything that appear from having this in him. So uh, it was there and that is something to be aware of, but I don't remember it being it, it. The key thing was that this power overtook him and it, it wiped his memory. Okay. Yeah. I, and yeah, because he was without oxygen, there was brain damage. And so something was going on. I, I can't yeah. remember everything. Anyway, point being, he is not the same Shafa that we, or it doesn't seem to be to me the same Shafa that we knew in but book But you're one. waiting for that, that shoe to drop. Yeah. I'm, I, I still don't trust him, but he sure does seem to be treating Nasun a lot better than he treated Demaya and all the other people that he interacted with in book one, right? So, yeah. How do we feel about her ending up with him? Other than, hey, there he is again. Dope moment. Great. <laughs> I had a very different experience of Shafa, it sounds like. I was so scared of him. This whole book, I I found him sinister and I like I don't know that I have ever had an experience with a, a villain. And I, I would think of him as a villain and an antagonist. I don't think I've ever had an experience reading a book where I I myself felt scared of 
the antagonist, not just like I could I could understand the character's feeling scared, but I myself felt scared of him. So what is a serious question? Because I might have just missed some things when I or, did he do anything in this book that was okay, Ryan? What was it? What what made him an antagonist in this book? Uh, I would say it's along those lines of uh, yeah, he still killed people. He still He's, did. He killed that fisherman and his entire family. Well, and, for and, like but it's, no clear reason. And that's that's him. He's lost his memories. He has these powers. He doesn't understand them anymore because he's lost his memory of having them. I don't necessarily feel like that was um him it like that felt more like the devil in his neck than like shafa unleashed or something yeah but that's kind of the point and why he works as an antagonist in this is it's that it is the dread that you feel of waiting for the shoe to drop for his memories to return or for him to go back to doing that because he's still naturally doing things that are destructive to other people yeah it's still part of who he is and it's part of the like his coding. So you're just waiting for it to come back. And that's honestly one of the big questions, not just in this book, but as it goes forward into book three, like you have to wonder like who is the final version of Shafa going to be? What is he going to do? Yeah. Is this going to be the redemption story of he starts out as the bad guy, goes through here, we're waiting for the shoe to drop, he gets his memories back, and then at the end decides I'm not going to be that person because everything I've learned in the middle, or is it, oh yeah, I am the bad guy, and I'm going to be a better bad guy. I am the one who knocks, you know, <laughs> some moment like that. Um, back to the the question here uh, from Merlia, how do, how do we feel about Nasen ending, ending up under Nushafa's guidance? Um, I, think it's, I, I think it's a great story point, and I'm not saying that I think that Shafa is a great person now, and, uh, and isn't, you know potentially a bad guy i i just didn't see anything in this story that made me be like okay he's gotta go um you know there there seems to be hope for him you know fighting against all this pain and evil and whatnot but i still like you said ryan i don't trust this guy and at some point something's gonna happen and he's gonna regress or turn or something well what it sets up is nasun ending up with shafa is a huge setup for closing this out because it's all driving towards the original mother-daughter reconnecting moment. Mm -hmm. Ooh, which, which like, what, what's it going to be? Is it going to be we're reconnecting or are they going to be on opposite sides? Because I'm more interested in the fact that she is now under the wing of uh, who she calls Silver, mm -hmm. uh, the other stone eater. The, the steel? Steel, sorry, Silver. Yeah, Silver's the magic. Steel, she mm -hmm. calls him yeah. Steel. Sorry, good call. Um, so he's the antagonist as far as I can tell um, and is mm. setting her up to oppose Essen in book three and there's going to be some showdown. Mm. You know, that's yeah. kind of that's kind of how I feel like it's going. There's my prediction. So we had <laughs> that's a kind of what I was I was going to drive us to eventually to. So uh, what are your big money down predictions for book three? So. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of the only one I've got. I don't have. I don't know. I guess maybe the, maybe the ultimate. Oh gosh, we're running way over. But maybe the ultimate question here is, or the ultimate prediction is, and Ryan, you don't count because you've read book three. Yep. Will the Earth survive? Is Jemison the kind of author who will 
you know, have her characters figure out a way to stop the, the cycles and save everything and, you know, whatever. Happily ever after. Well, okay, probably not that. But, or or is she the type who says, you know what, and then they tried their absolute best and failed and uh, they brought the moon crashing down into the earth, Majora's Mask style, and everyone died. Uh, hmm. I don't know. Sarah, what do you think? Prediction? I don't know. I'm not really a reader who thinks predicts, ahead yeah. and predicts. I would. What do you it, want? What do you want? Um, I, I want there to be. I'm, I'm still thinking about Shafa. I, I want there to be some sort of really satisfying resolution re Shafa. I would love for the mother daughter healing to take place in some fashion. Um, and I would bet that the earth will survive, but I don't know if any of our characters will, mm, you know? Okay. So I could see if, if I, if I had to make a guess and put a small amount of money down on it, then that would be it. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to go with, you know what? Uh, that's, that's actually a good place to leave this. So Chesky Kurja, I'm sorry. And I think I said your name, right? I'm sorry. I will answer you on discord. We will answer you on discord, um, about, uh, about the viewpoints and, and how well things worked or, or didn't work. I think we did two episodes for the first book. I'm not sure that we have enough for a second episode on this, but here's what we'll do. Um, we'll do book three and then if we need a mop up episode, we'll do that. Sound good. So it, this is about, you know, the, the viewpoints, the, in book one, there was a lot of, uh, a lot to be made of the structure, uh, the, of the different points of view, all of Essen basically in different mm-hmm. points of her life and how she set it up and book two just didn't, didn't do that. Right. Um, so, yeah, there, there are things to talk about, but I, I assume that we'll be able to talk about that as well with book three and, you know, how books two and three differ from one and all that. So we will get to that. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like we're going to need an extra episode after we're done with book three? Uh, there's a good chance. I'm thinking that we'll probably need a, a mop up episode. Um, if nothing else, there's just a lot of things that all of a sudden take place in book three. They're, we're just going to need a lot of time on book three, at least. So what you're saying is that things happen in book three. Oh, yes. <laughs> things happen and things are clarified. Yeah. All right, good. Well, we will um, adjourn here for today because we're already over our time and we're not the blue team. Okay, so we don't go for 90 plus minutes. Sorry, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Maybe the blue team will have me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Um, if I could keep talking. Well, I'm, we, I'm a pretty talkative lady. We are going to be back for book three. Uh, but for today, thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, you may commence yelling at your uh, radios or you know, iPhones or <laughs> whatever. Yeah, sure. Your car stereo. Fine. Radio. <laughs> whatever. Your, your stereo. Uh, yes, that, that we didn't get to the thing that you wanted us to get to. I'm, I'm sure we left a lot on the table, but uh, we will be back. We'll talk about book three. We'll probably end up doing a mop-up episode, and so we, you can submit questions again for that. Uh, we'd love to have them. Uh, but for now, go to thelegendarium.com, go to patreon.com slash legendarium, and uh, support the show. And yeah, we'll see you next time. <laughs>